0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two of season two of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallat. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, I encourage you to follow the podcast and write a great review on your platform of choice. If you don't like it, write a shitty review but post that on Joe Rogan's podcast page. As you may know by now, I find stories really interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. Bame Joyner believes in Atlanta. Born and raised in the city, he has a pure passion for its people and its progress. In his words, he majorly contributes to what makes culture in Atlanta cool and captivating. As a culture curator and co founder of the civic minded creative consultancy and brand Atlanta Influences Everything, BAME has managed and consulted a variety of lifestyle brands and designed meaningful programs for clients like Sprite, the Mississippi Department of Education, Truth.org, Jack Daniels, Nissan, the National Black Arts Festival, and countless others. He is heavily involved in the Atlanta hip hop music scene and even booked early adopter shows for Drake. Kendrick Lamar, and the Goody Mob Reunion. BAME is also one of the founders of creativecall.org, which is a community service effort and collaboration between Atlanta and Stockholm creatives. And he was previously the community engagement coordinator for the Center for Civic Innovation in South Downtown Atlanta. BAME recently joined the leadership team at Eight Strains, a cannabis and crypto startup in San Francisco as their culture and community lead. He also currently serves on the boards of three nonprofits the Grove Park Foundation, the Wren's Nest, and the Atlanta Film Society. BAME is fascinating, and I think you'll enjoy meeting him.
1: Man, glad to be here, yo. Uh, thank you for even wanting to talk things and, and, and talk life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Tell my listeners
0: about you and what you do, what tell them about Atlanta influences everything, but tell them about what you do, because I think it's pretty interesting and it's very different um, for the people who typically listen to my podcast to, to, you know, the, what you do every day is, is a cool thing.
1: Uh, So I, I'm a, I love information and I I take it in. And so I've taken in a lot of information since the last time we spoke. And uh, learn more about like cultural ethnography. Um, so maybe I do that. But uh, without knowing a lot about cultural ethnography, I called myself a creative culture curator. So, um, and that influences everything is a, is a, civic-minded creative consultancy that works with brands to connect to their audience uh, in an authentic way. We were doing that work um, for years, but something felt off in terms of like just helping brands connect to uh, multicultural audiences especially Black culture in Atlanta, um, when the, the communities that these brands wanted to connect with, it wasn't reciprocal, especially in terms of working for the brand or working for the marketing agency uh, and getting paid for a lot of the cultural IP that came out of these same communities. So we, we figured out that there might have been a, a space in the CSR world of, of, of these brands that if you do good marketing and you do it with the intention on, uh, to get people obviously to buy a product, but you you do some sort of authentic marketing campaign with the lean in to the community, then that in itself becomes a good marketing campaign. You've seen it with Apple and International Women's Day certain campaigns, but we wanted to actually run marketing and branding in Atlanta in that manner with brands on the outside that were trying to come into Atlanta. But we also needed to get Atlanta to buy into that. Hey, we have this unique power and influence as a city and we as a city should be doing something. So it's kind of twofold.
0: Yeah. I thought it was interesting when, when we were talking, you were telling me and and I had never really thought about this and I'm a career marketer, but the idea that the big brands don't really understand how to get hyper local. They don't, they don't really have a great understanding of, you know, reaching the, the city audience in Atlanta is different than reaching the suburban audience in Atlanta that I'm part of. Cause I'm not in Atlanta. I'm outside Atlanta in a whole different world for people who don't, don't live down here. But, um, I had really never thought about it that way, but that's kind of where your your background really came in when you started really moving was getting a lot of those you know bigger brands and getting them connected with more the city communities and the places that they weren't comfortable and they weren't equipped to actually market or sell into very well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and, and you know my I didn't start off that way, I guess, but in um, meeting brand reps and regional marketing reps and agency and, and, and creative directors and agencies, very cool, great people. Um, they weren't people that came out of most weren't people that came out of the Atlanta public school system. And most, uh, were not, you know, as you probably heard people say, you know, you want people that be around people that look like you, everyone else gets to do it. So, you know, why can't I do it? And I wanted this, I came up in a multicultural Atlanta, black side of town, but uh, Atlanta public school in Buckhead, North Atlanta was like a performing arts and international studies uh, magnet school. So it was just, I mean, everyone was there and, but it had this black lean cause it's Atlanta. So that's, that's the way Uh, I was raised and when I saw these brands, I didn't really see many people from Atlanta, even if it was like a white person from Atlanta, just somebody white from Buckhead that I grew up with, they weren't really working at these agencies. You know, at the most you'll find, you know, a suburban white kid or something like that. And every now and then you'll come across a, a regular kind of black Atlanta public schools person it's like, yo, you, you know, you get it, you're, you understand, but the more you get to meet the people who are working these jobs, um, and they're not entrepreneurs, you know, they're entrepreneurs in some form because these type of jobs, uh, they kind of, uh, kind of support entrepreneurship thinking, I, you know, you just, I, I would meet people who, you know, GPA 2.7, 2.85, you know, University of Michigan, got kicked out of semester, got caught with some weed, beat the charge, you know? And I'm like, damn, you know, your black equivalent just does not have this job or even know it exists. So that's what made me, you know, want to connect those dots more because I realized it wasn't rocket science or like some special thing or whatever. It's just like, oh, okay. There's, there are groups of people that just don't even know this world even exists. So that's what made me want to in and more intentionally connect dots.
0: Yeah. And you were telling me when we talked the last time that, and, and, you know, shame on me for not really knowing this, but that none of the HBCUs even really have tracks, educational tracks to drive someone into the agency business. There's, they're not, there isn't a, a path for someone of color to actually follow where there is at, you know, your example, University of Michigan, you know, there's a track that you can get there, but if you go through an HBCU even, or any other predominantly African-American university, it, there's less opportunity coming out of school to find those, those roles and those jobs to, to actually be able to influence these communities.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that when I was at Jackson state, uh, great, great professors, at, uh, great one prof- professor at Dr. Enos, God bless the dead, this man was uh, a a futurist in the the rawest sense of the word. But, uh, you know, they would try to send us to say, well, you know, work in the marketing department at Procter & Gamble. So it was like they were trying to send us to corporate, to companies, because that's what the college would want to, you know, connect their, their graduates to. Nine to five workforce, you know, jobs. But oh, you're in marketing, so we're sending the 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 person who's pre med. They're going to be at Procter and Gamble in this department. But you're in marketing, so you're going to be at Procter and Gamble in the marketing department. So it wasn't until I got out of school and and uh, I worked at Tower Records for a while and just because I, w- I wanted to work in the music industry. I, and and um, when I started doing street team work for Cornerstone Promotions and, and Fader, met people who worked uh, for Complex Magazine and Mark Echo, now when you, that's culture. So the music led me to more cultural stuff. Mm-hmm. And the culture stuff led me to agency people because they're right there. You know, it's all one big gumbo stew. And then that's when I started learning more about the agency world. And I met uh, an agency that that's no longer in Atlanta called GTM. Uh, they used to be in Castleberry Hill and they handled the, the truth, uh, the truth.com account. So they did all the street team. It, it Basically they did a, a, a round cross country tour with truth.com. So they, they, what you saw in the commercials, they took that to people physically. Mm-hmm. And then they did uh Sminoff, Master of the Mix, Crest 2, like a myriad of brands. But these were five black guys that were probably about eight to 10 years older than me. Uh, and like one or two of them, long dreadlocks, uh, jeans, sneakers, t-shirts, stuff that, that you know, my professors and my parents were like, yo, it's, there's no way you're working a job looking <laughs> like this. You know what I'm saying? So you know, I always knew in the music industry you could dress like that, but once I started seeing the the freedom of the agency world and that it was based upon deliverables of your creativity, like you need to deliver upon that. So you
0: mentioned the music industry and you, you did a you kicked around in the music business and, and I think you still get involved with that. And I I do know that back in the day at least you were involved in in taking some some really big name artists in the earliest stages like Drake and Kendrick Lamar and other people and kind of bringing them, bringing them into the area. And that seems to me like that. I I'd love for you to describe what that was because I, I look at it and think that had to be the ultimate and kind of what I would call hustle marketing. Just, you know, I, I imagine you go into clubs and the, and the shows and handing out flyers and just talking to people, but it seems like it seems like that'd be a cool thing to do, but it seems like it'd be an, an amazing uphill battle, a
1: lot of work to get that done. Uh yeah, um yeah it, it's I mean it all starts from from marketing and branding so you know just how any any company or brand has a marketing team then the record labels have marketing teams so uh you're pushing flyers and for products and you're pushing flyers for parties. And then you're pushing uh, album cover, you know, like uh, album release date flyers and um, street team. Like I mean, we did uh, so like what we call sniping. You know, with the you go to bed, there's nothing on the telephone pole. You wake up in the morning, there's like posters everywhere. Uh, So like you meet a bunch of interesting people doing. Uh, you know, working working these projects, uh, and sometimes you would have to drop record. This is all so guerrilla. Five years, five maybe six years before things started shifting to digital, when everything was still physically hand to hand flyers, uh, actually taking the record. You know, getting the records, a, a box of records in mm-hmm. the mail. From the label, and then working them to DJs at clubs in Atlanta, and so you develop relationships and meet a bunch of interesting people in doing this, and, and it puts you uh, right up on 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 the music. Uh, especially for someone who's making music, then they would see your your value the same way an agency or a brand. It's like, oh, you. You know these people. You can get my thing in these hands, and so um, then we started realizing, you know, we could throw our own parties and 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 get people there that we had been promoting to or whatever, because of those same trusted relationships, um, and especially if you didn't just take any project that came through, you know, for the for the money. Or whatever. So, if you if you were known to promote certain things or, or, or certain type of music that was a particular vibe that people wanted to engage in, then over a period of years, you you have this kind of public trust. You develop mm-hmm. it over a period of time, and because they they know there are others that do the same thing you do that, you know, they know they're pushing whatever they're getting paid to push it's not a and so people could tell the difference um and that impacts my business to this day but um as as things started shifting digital it took the musical control out of the gatekeepers that that controlled what music got played or who you know who got who got on and who didn't and uh, I always knew like I knew some early Kanye mixtapes that he was going to be like very large. You could hear it in his early mixtapes. Um, the same kind of with like Lupe fiasco and it's like kick push and, and, and kid Cuddy, but kid Cuddy a little bit before Drake had started the dawn of like the, the blog era rap of, 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 uh, on the other side of, um, Napster Mm -hmm. with the file Mm -hmm. sharing. And so a lot of uh, great artists would just, you know, would start putting their stuff on the internet. You could see that the record labels and the radio stations, they didn't have teams that were scouring the internet at the time. And so in between work and projects, I love music and would just, I had trusted sites I would go to and um, click on things that, Either the artwork was interesting. I never heard of the artist, but the artwork is interesting, which is what I used to do at Tower. Uh-huh. Look at, mm-hmm. you know, album cover artwork and be like, "Oh, yo, oh, wow!" Uh, or they had a feature or something about them that made me click on it, and then doing that, you know, you eventually come across like a Drake, uh, Kendrick Lamar early stages. And uh, the more you, you share with friends and start talking to people and realize that other people are nodding their head, just like you, it's like, man, yo, we should bring this person to Atlanta. Because at that point, you, you worked enough clubs, thrown your own parties to know venue sizes. And mm-hmm. so at this point, mm-hmm. you're just matching. You don't have to compete with what's on the radio. That's a different level. So you use a venue that you kind of guesstimate the size of the audience that you think, you know, the person is gonna draw. And for Drake, uh we were looking at at The Loft. So not even center stage downtown at that, I think maybe 1500 to 1800 in center stage. The Loft is like 900, eight, eight nine hundred. Um, But it was when he dropped his mixtape, So Far Gone. But we we knew about him then, so we were working on trying to get him. And when we first were trying to get him, uh, my business partner didn't want to do it at the time. He wasn't as on to him. And I didn't find this out until later, but we could have gotten Drake for a four- to five-star hotel and two first-class plane tickets for him and his producer Forty, So that that he was willing to do, and this was maybe fall 08 when he was willing to maybe do a show for that. But the price changed by March 09 and we got Drake for 8,500. Um, that's that's what well, it which was. still seems and like
0: it's... a bargain <laughs> today. It's, that, that's a pretty good bargain. <laughs>
1: yeah. And did, did, did you know? Did similar? You know, find out about Kendrick. So there's a theme of like doing, uh, making money, and doing things based on how you feel and what you believe first, and then. Testing, testing it amongst other people in your tribe, and then you get the kind of yay and nay on that. You know, they got tentacles in other places, but not doing things to please people first. You're, you're, you're pleasing yourself first, which is self, self pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, but you do things based on what feels good to you. You mm-hmm. know. And, uh, that, that feeling, you know, led to my, me wanting to do diversity inclusion work. All of it comes from the same place of, uh, there's a privilege, I guess, that comes in moving off how you feel and how you want to move that, that there's a privilege, uh, attached to that. Um. And I didn't know that that I was learning that privilege or, 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 or doing that in the sense of, oh, I like this artist. Let me find out how to get in contact with whoever their management is. Oh, that's the price. Can you do it for this? Uh, okay, negotiate. And then, you know, book it with three other friends. Um, that set me on a path of, of, of knowing that you know, it, that I could do, and not just me, that others could do, because it, it, it wasn't, um, I didn't have a hookup or anything. I did go to Jackson State with Drake's manager, but at the time, he had just started managing Drake, and we already had another line be- before him. So what I saw was like, okay, digital, when you take digital and you take a seeker, and and information that you can kind of build your own. You don't have to wait on anybody or go through uh, a gatekeeper and those, and those artists being as big as they are today. uh, It still is kind of, I guess it's over a decade ago, you know, at this point. And so it seems so far away. And the only time I like to talk about it is to try to, which i appreciate you bringing it up to show that my resume is is full of breadcrumbs that unless you know how to read it correctly it might not make sense but there's a trail of breadcrumbs i look at myself like the quantum leap guy he's like he's in the back of every picture like you don't really know but the the music and all of that led to other things, but they all come from the same place of um, ownership of self and, and, and acting upon what I feel uh, is, is, is right by me, you know? And so, yeah, that that's, and, and I'll say with, with uh, that's why I say when I don't like to, cause I, you can't brag on something you did like 10 years ago per se um, but because these artists are so big, to have been up s- so close to them, and does Drake remember me? Nah, I have to. I think I would. Ha- I have to say a couple of things, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, okay." Uh, and the, the the same with Kendrick. Even though I spent more time with Kendrick because I, I had to pick him up from the airport in my mom's car, and took him back to the airport, you know. So and he left his hotel receipt in the car. Uh, he stayed at the Sheraton downtown and he used his name. So I have the hotel receipt with Kendrick Lamar's name on it. So yeah, yeah, it's
0: pretty cool. <laughs> um, you, you 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 touched on two things I want to ask you about. So one is your, your D&I work, just in my transparency. Part of the reason was that as I've developed the podcast, I find myself lacking on diverse voices. I've had a lot of, white people who look like me and I don't and I started scrolling through who I knew and who I didn't know and people that I wanted to have on and I frankly don't know that many people of color which is it's amazing when you become self-aware of that because I didn't even realize it it was one of those things where you you know and I step back and look in my career and think how many African American people have I worked with how many people have I interacted with in a bit from a business perspective and the numbers not what it ought to be and so I reached out to Bem and I reached out to him and I'll tell you, I think I might've mentioned this when we talked before, I reached out kind of delicately and I want to expand my horizons because I'm not comfortable being that isolated the way I am. And then you mentioned diversity and inclusion work. And I know you're spending a lot of time in helping companies and helping probably people like me understand and embrace the D&I side of things and how to, you know, how to make ourselves better and how to make our businesses better by being more inclusive.
1: So it it and it oh and actually to go back um I just we just go we like I just start talking about this stuff cuz that's it's all I talk about all day so it's just so easy just to talk um, about culture and creativity and community because it's, it's all I talk about all day um and I can't remember if the first time we spoke uh, uh if I if we if you mentioned my name a lot uh but a lot of times it misses me because I go right into speaking on. Things that I'm very excited about, but my name is actually pronounced Bane, like name. Um, there's an accent mark over the E that I never put there, just uh, maybe out of laziness. I don't know. So it's like name, but Bane, but you would not, you wouldn't know because it's B E M. Um, so it's pronounced Bane, and it means peace in Swahili. Uh, and my middle name is Ali which means warrior. And my last name is Joiner. Now, uh, you know, true to African-American history, Joiner would be a slave name. And I haven't done Ancestry.com yet, but from my understanding, like uh, maybe like joinery, cabinet maker type stuff, maybe, as I've heard randomly from people. Uh, And so maybe about 2013, uh, and trying to figure my life out, I was thinking about my name and and just, uh, I've realized the, the business model to living my name. So it's like peaceful, warrior who joins things. So I, I'm a very chill guy, very passionate, but uh, very chill. And uh, I fight, like I'm a fighter for things I believe in, so the, the warrior. But I've been known, I've built my personal brand off of connecting people, dots, people, things. Um, and it, there was really no money in that. <laughs> like, and so years of, of no money. And, um, but years of, of to the earlier point of creating public trust. Now, the, the trust would be there because it was just a genuine person, but it would confuse people that I would do these things and not get money from them or even ask for money or whatever. I, I didn't understand how to, I didn't understand that my skill set was tangible enough to, for you to pay me, and I didn't know how to quantify that for myself. Uh, and was getting there, like I was. I was learning that um, right before COVID and George Floyd and everything else that happened. Um, and so when when the response to to COVID and George Floyd was this um, wanting to come together and right some wrongs and, and uh, this seeking to to learn, to do more, to connect. I'm like, yo, oh, oh shit. I'm already kind of like doing that, you know? And so um, once I saw people put together like strategies, cause I was doing it just on some, hey, Oh, you don't know? Hey, you need to know. Y'all should connect. Uh, but once I saw, and I, I I knew about diversity and inclusion, but when I heard it like five years ago, it felt so uh, stoic and, and, and academic mm-hmm. because you can actually get uh, certification. And at first, I didn't understand why you would need certification, but I do kind of understand. But you know, real life is real life. You like you got to get out there and and, and actually want to do it and get into it. But if it, 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 it felt like uh, it wasn't me, like it's very academic. But when people put strategies to it and and use more layman terms, because w- where the country was at with 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 Trump and George Floyd it was only gonna be layman's terms that was gonna bring together people Mm -hmm. that were from different classes and different races. Just general language. Hey man, I'm sorry. How can, like, Greg, I don't even know. Just just start, see spot, see racism. (laughs) Like, like, hey, you know, that's, and and, and once it got to that, we gotta all sit at home and take all this in. It, it slowed things down enough, slowed the system down, slowed people down enough to be more open to listen and try try different things. And that created a space for the, the cultural work that I was already doing in a creative space. Uh, and then I worked at a nonprofit for four years and I learned policy and I, I learned the social impact world. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Mackey. From, um whole foods and the whole like conscious capitalism movement and all of these little these 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 things and then companies like allbirds and it's like okay there's a thing here and it existed pre-covid pre-George Floyd but it was these were almost subcultures unto themselves it, it wasn't law or or like people weren't leaning into it. They were kind of in their own little groups over in the corner. And COVID just allowed for for webinars and all type of things to that you could share to other people. Say, mm-hmm. hey, check out this webinar. And then I'd be like, oh, and so there was just this large information sharing. Some of it good information, some of it information that that hurt you know, or whatever, but it created this space for uh, people to be willing to learn, to try, and to be real with you with the amount of money being, and opportunities being put into DEI work. uh, It allowed for a monetary space for me that I was scared to ask for before. Mm -hmm. It's like the, 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 the situation has helped me ask for it and has helped people off even offer it to me. Hey man, I want to pay. Like, I'm like, wow. I was, I was having trouble asking you. Um, but I, 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 I do like you and you, you like me. Um, so you know, we can date now, but I was, I was nervous, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, the, the times have helped with that currently.
0: Um, you, you used the word earlier in the conversation privilege. And I think it's uh, it's a word that gets associated as white privilege more often than just privilege. So obviously you're using it contextually, Um, but it it struck me as one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So I I was listening to a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it had a it was three people, yeah. (laughs) It it had it was a much better one than mine. In in total fairness, but it is what it is. but they had three, three people were hosting it and they were talking about, um, words and language and the way it can be, um, co-opted. And so it was a, it was a woman, it was two African-Americans. One of them used to work as a writer for ESPN, the magazine, and is now part of Metal Ark Media and, um they what the and the topic was really about words and it was the idea on how words that have a certain meaning culturally are then getting co-opted by whoever you know mo- most typically it's being co-opted by the right but you know words like where woke wasn't a bad word it had a meaning in the african american community and now it's been turned into something that doesn't mean what it used to mean and is used to divide people, which is never what it was intended to do. And, um, you know, privilege is another one. Privilege is one of those scary words, I think, for people now, because like when you talk about privilege or you just, you know what, it's a trigger word. Trigger is another one. Like trigger has now become a trigger word for lack of a better thing. So I'd love your perspective on, on language and the evolution of it and, and the words that are okay and the words that are not okay. And at least, or at least how do you help someone like me know what's a comfortable word? And so I'm not misusing something and trying to use words that are actually offensive from a DNI perspective to somebody that I don't even necessarily know are offensive to someone.
1: Man, you know, that's a that's a <laughs> that's a hard one. Because uh growing up in Atlanta. I mean, we were, my family was middle, middle, probably middle, middle class. My parents got divorced when I was in the fourth grade. So we, you know, single parent household. They were both like
0: educators, that. right? Your parents were both teachers or educator, educators? Uh,
1: social workers. Social workers, okay. Yeah, they, 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 my dad had a master's in social work from Atlanta University and master's in psychology from Emory and then my mom a master's in social work from Atlanta University where they met, and my mom went public sector, so she was a Atlanta public school social worker, and my dad went private sector, so he was like Charter Hospital, Laurel Heights Bronner Hospital, um, so they they were always like, it's like whatever type of person want to be a social worker, like what, like whatever that is there's some community in that to even mm-hmm. wanna wanna do that. And so it that that's it was naturally in me. I just came of age in in hip hop and uh and outcast and the face records. And so it's like, nah, that's what I want to be. I trying to be no social worker. I'm trying to be what I'm seeing on Yo MTV Raps and Rap City. And and uh, but in in growing up in old Atlanta like, we, I knew like real Jack and Jill kids, you know, like these were like black elite. And so they, that was privilege, you know, that was privilege because Atlanta's so black. That was privilege before I even understood what white privilege was. I knew about what was perceived to be black privilege, like these Jack and Jill. Like my homeboy's dad built the first World of Coca Cola in Atlanta, Concourse E, the jail that was downtown. Like this, my homeboy's dad, and so that was privilege, you know, of what I felt. I didn't, I didn't have a pool in my yard. The first, you know, Atari when it came out, then the Neo Geo. Remember the Neo? <laughs> like all of these games, and I'm like, yo, this is. Now, and, and I didn't know until years later, Cosby showing other things that, oh, this is a Black thing. I thought they were just rich people. But then you see, okay, it seems like there are more white people living like this than Black. Then I started to learn, okay, there's white privilege. But I still was using privilege in terms of um, money, you know, and so I think a lot of people were until five, six, seven years ago it changed from money to an ideology and, and, and the, uh, the psychological effect of just being. And so like white people are now, the, you know, from a black perspective, you get punished for just being, like I didn't know me just being white came with this privilege. And then black people would say, well, I feel you, but shit, I've been punished just for being too. Yeah. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like just so both both sides are are getting doses, you know, of of, of just being. And so to 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 just be white and, and you know now most white people I know it's just something about the police car that that does something to I I I have felt human anxiety. You just not, you know, you're not doing wrong. Police car. And so I've seen all white people I know be like, you know, like, oh, uh-huh. it me, you know, so, but there's this perception that white privilege, you wouldn't do that. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's just a police. Yeah. Hey officer. And that, you know, there could be some truth in that. But there are some human factors. Um, I, you know, most white people I know, you know, they're not trying to just go hug up on the police officer, right? But they, it's like, yo, if I, you know, if, if there's no reason for you and I to interact, then I'm straight on not interacting with you. You know, but it's a perception that white people are good at inter they like they oh the interaction. Hey, you want to interact? And I'm like, yo, I don't really think, and it's not it's not personal against the police officer, it's just that you know, it's kind of a high and by thing with any of us if there's no real reason to interact, because shit happens, but there's a perception. And it, and, it, and it is real from a comfortability standpoint that if a white person did have to interact with a police officer, they're much more comfortable if they have to than a black person because things can go awry. Yeah. Um, so, so the the word privilege, the and the the same with woke. Um, who was working on a on a project with Lululemon, and before we started working with them, they they made a mistake early on, when Black Lives Matter started becoming more popular. They they were trying to do like a United Colors of Bennington type of campaign that wouldn't that would include black, but say hey let's all come together. So they were like, we're going to do an All Lives Matter, you know. And they 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 did the press release and they put out some stuff, but they didn't find out. I think you know they immediately immediately got called on it. And I could see like, damn, you know, I could see where y'all were coming from, you know, United Colors of Benetton, all lives, it, but then words and cultural context.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um and 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 those things can get lost because digitally. Especially with the usage of the hashtag, you can change the sound and vibe of a of a word by using it, and I think that's probably where Twitter, more than than Facebook or any other uh, uh, digital platform, Twitter, if used good, bad, or ugly, can change. It's it's when you said the the now you know woke is used in this particular way I think it started on Twitter in a way but then it Twitter also changed it it's it's to me it's Twitter because all Twitter is I mean you could post on there but it, it's it's uh is words and characters that have tone and so I, I I a lot of this is to Twitter I think good bad and ugly and it changes. And there's, there's really urban dictionary, you know, the, the word, I guess the phrase fuck 12 came, you know, post, uh, you know, George Floyd, you know, that was an Atlanta term just way back in the day for, for police, uh, and the, the, the thoughts on, on police. And and then my last thing I say, a lot of black slang or black language, you know, you, rooted back to slavery times and, and speaking so that the master doesn't hear you speaking in uh-huh. drums and, and, and other things. So that's why the drum is so, you know, the, the drum, as they say, has, uh, ancestral vibes from Africa in the, in the, the, the rhythms of the drums. So it's very, the drums are powerful in any form of music, obviously, but then, um, the language, you know, apparently Swing Low Sweet Chariot had hidden messages in it, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's like, uh, and then you fast forward that in in hip hop, in, in street lingo, uh, a lot of street cats as to evade, you know, evade the law, phone tap or assuming the phone tap, somebody listening, um, the myriad of language for drugs and 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 all like, not just drugs, but anything mm-hmm. in 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 the black community. It dual meanings, all type of 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 words. You know, if you look at to smoke high grade weed, that has a name. But if it's like regular weed, oh, that's that Reggie Miller. What do you mean, Reggie Miller? Reggie regular Reggie Miller. You know what I'm saying? Like this is all type of. Uh, and then that has even gone to anybody that's a parent now. Think there's a guide out that uh, explains teenage emoji language. So now we're at a, a place where there's not e- there's no words even being used anymore. And you thought the you you know just like woke was one thing cool and then it got changed. You know th- there was a point where the eggplant was was it was an eggplant I guess you know <laughs> and now the eggplant now is something else. And there's a whole language of emojis with no words, but it's three sentences. That were said with, I guess, twelve emojis. Yeah, you know. So. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just kind of being fluid enough to kind of pay attention to cultural cues from from the essence of where you first heard the term, you know. And even we say, well, if I first heard it here, that means it's probably you know three levels back, maybe. So you know, and you can always. Google is always our friend. You'll you'll get if you click on five sites where you ask the question, one or two of those sites is going to give you context into mm-hmm. what, you know, the different levels of what woke is. But there, I understand why another side would demonize it because is there such thing as being too woke? Uh, you know, it's it's if you know somebody that was a a heathen in the center <laughs> and they uh something happened and they got saved uh like immediate and then like it go the pendulum swings from like one thing to the other yo you yeah. know so yeah that can easily happen in this same space
0: yeah couple things before i let you go mm-hmm. one of them is i'm trying to trying to ask some questions just to, to, to get to know people a little bit deeper at the very end of each podcast. So first question, what's your proudest moment?
1: I couldn't say becoming a father and stuff like that. You know, it's, that's that's real. Uh, but probably um, in 2012, because I used to do things in groups, like groups with friends, group think. And it felt like, you know, I couldn't stand on my own. Um, Like I couldn't come up with an idea from the beginning and then see it through to the end on my own uh, without using minimal help. And so um, 2010, I came up with an idea uh, to do this creative cultural exchange with artists, Atlanta artists and artists from another country. And in 2012, at the end of 2012, um, I did it. It was myself and and a, and a a girl Joanna, on a on a Swedish end. But I was the Atlanta guy. It was my idea. She helped me connect on the Swedish end, and we took fifteen creators from Atlanta to Stockholm for a uh, week long cultural exchange. And I, I didn't use any of my normal cast of characters or friends that to, you know, and that that gave me a lot of confidence, you know? So yeah, that's probably one of my proudest moments. Cool.
0: How about a, uh, any regrets, a big regret or a do-over something you'd want to Did you'd want to step back now with perspective and say, eh, I might've done this a little differently or.
1: Um, yeah, overall, which is why I love young people so much to, to, to try to, help them avoid what I'm saying is um, I didn't know how to, how to do what I was trying to do. And so uh, very selfish, you know, possibly narcissistic uh, double triple down on, on, on the dream on the why, which meant, no one, like literally like no one, family, uh, friends, like people who really care about the horse blinders. And so if your feelings or your heart or anything was caught up in, in, in trying to, to, to see the thing done, then, you know, uh, you know, I guess ask for forgiveness, you know, later, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forget, But that's that, that's unfortunate that it's got to be like that. Uh-huh. And so um, had I known about certain opportunities or certain opportunities, because there's certain opportunities that exist now to 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 get in creative careers, like what we were saying about HBCUs. I came out of Jackson State 02. But now there are pathways into these creative careers that are connecting to HBCUs, which would... To me, make you not have to make such a brash or sometimes abrupt decisions that would would affect people other than yourself, you know. So yeah, I, I have regrets on, on 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 those things.
0: Lastly, um, who inspires you?
1: Um, I wanted to be a scuba diver at a point, so like uh, Jacques Cousteau. And then just even, you know, Jacques Cousteau and his, his, the brand, like the water, it's like, yo, Jacques Cousteau, like he just, he owned it, you know, uh, um, Shakir Stewart, uh, and, and Chris Lighty, both a rs that I wanted to be like, and they both passed away from suicide. Uh, this documentary on Netflix called, uh the Black Godfather, this guy, Clarence Avant. Um, He's amazing. Like he's the most, he's the best dot connector. Like he's the, that's who I, you know, the Atlanta version of him. And then, uh, can Richard Branson, you know, like I I love Richard Branson, Um, you know, and then uh, um, lastly, probably like Fannie Lou Hamer. Because she didn't give a shit. She was gonna. It was at Mississippi and her. She was gonna tell it how, how it was, you know, and how it needed to be said. Uh, so yeah, and then you know Bob Marley, of course, because that the uh, he's an honorary citizen of. Like not many of us with our last names can just go around the world and your family last name, just be accepted. I feel like the Marlies can go to Afghanistan right now and just be like, yo, we the Marlies, like what's good. And they'd be like, okay, Taliban, like, I right, Marlies, you know, but in the Kennedys, nobody else has that, you know, for, for those of us with family last names and believe in our last name, the, the Marlies. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: So, Thank you for making time and for being on with me. I really appreciate it. Um, it's, been, it's been a real pleasure to get to know you in these, these few conversations we've had and um, hopefully we can connect again.
1: Yo, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed as are your shares and of course your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.